1927, the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe's father-in-law, was arrested for spreading Judaism in communist Russia. It was an excruciating ordeal. They put him through physical pain, mental pain, hours of interrogation at crazy hours of the night. He wrote about it. A personal diary he called Rishimat HaMa'asar, the diary of the imprisonment. And in his vivid pen, he described step by step everything which happened to him and how he made a resolution firmly at the beginning never to give in to anything that they would say. He would purposely undermine their authority at every step of the way just to prove that they have no power over him. And uh, one of the stories recorded is that there was just one particular interrogation where they were trying to use scare tactics on him to get information out of him about the activities that he was running underground in Russia. And they were questioning him and questioning him and it was going nowhere. So finally, the, uh, the chief interrogator pulled out his revolver and he put it on the table. And he said, this toy has made many people before you talk. So just know that I'm ready to use this toy if I have to. So the Friedrich Rebbe turned to him and said, this toy only scares people that have one world and many gods. But a person who has one God and many worlds, this toy doesn't scare. Wow. Mic drop, as they say. Incredibly powerful concept. But it is a basic tenet to the Jewish faith that we have two worlds. In other words, there's the experience that we go through as a human being in this lifetime. And then there's a godly, transcendental, infinite type of world. It's called Olam Haba, the world to come, not because it doesn't exist now, it exists now, but it comes after the experience in this physical world. We must live through a physical life in order to be able to enter the next world. And of course, the final reward is again physical with Mashiach. But there's two worlds. And this letter, letter number five, which was written in 1801, I mentioned a couple of times that each year the Alter Rebbe would send out a, a pitch for tzedakah. He would collect from his uh, communities of Hasidim all around Russia, and he would send a letter of inspiration detailing some kind of power about tzedakah, and it would be a form of a fundraising pitch to get them to give. And this one was written in 1801, winter of 1801. And he discusses at length the two worlds. He contrasts the olam haba, the experience in the world to come, in heaven, and this world. And a remarkable insight uh, emerges about our world and specifically about tzedakah. It's a long letter. I'm going to do my best to condense and simplify the ideas. And uh, I'm going to frame it this way. The sages in the Talmud describe the experience in the world to come. They say, what happens in Olam Haba? Tzadikim Yoshrim, the righteous sit, v'nehenim miziv hashchina, 
and they take pleasure in the ray of the Shekhinah, of, of God's presence. That's how the Talmud describes it. It's a pleasurable experience. Hasidus explains that the pleasure is not a physical pleasure. It's not a, uh, a material, mundane pleasure. It's an intellectual pleasure. It's deriving pleasure from being able to really appreciate divinity. Every soul according to his capacity. In Kabbalah language we call this Bina, the process of understanding. We also have intellectual achievements in this world. We, we understand things in this world. We also understand godliness in this world. We're able to, some, in some way, gain an insight into how Hashem works. But there's a massive difference between the intellectual uh, process as it exists in this world to the way it exists in the next world. I remember once uh, giving the illustration, I think it's, it's a great, it's very apropos. When you teach children math, so you start with, let's say, one plus one equals two. You're trying to teach the principle of addition. You can't teach kids principles unless you give them illustrations. So one plus one is communicated by saying, you have one cup and then another cup equals, and they say two cups. And then you go, one apple and a second apple equals two apples. Now for the kid, that's two different equations. One cup plus another cup, one apple plus another, they have to process it separately. It takes them time until they can graduate and understand that there's a principle that underlies both equations. It's the principle of one plus one equals two. In the same way, Hasidus kind of observes, anything we reach in our understanding of God in this world is only like a math metaphor. We see God here and we see God there. We see God in this experience, we see God in that experience, but it's always deduction and separate equations. We never get to see the underlying principle at the core of everything. That's why Hashem is hidden in this world. When you use the words like hidden and revealed, in Kabbalah it's full of it. Hashem is hidden in this world, Hashem is revealed in the next world. The concept of revelation means being able to tear away all the layers, all the cover-ups, all the curtains, and get a glimpse behind the veil. Just to be able to see what it is that's going on behind everything that's at the core of everything. So when we say that in the next world the souls get to experience a pleasure, a true pleasure in God's presence, what we mean is they get to see the, the part of God that's inaccessible in this world. So if you will, it's kind of like, it's only a semi-intellectual experience. It's partially transcendental, beyond intellect. Because it's those things that typically could not make it into the brain that now the soul, because it has ascended a level, is able to appreciate and see those things as well. So it's quasi-intellect. Intellect governed by something supra-rational. In Kabbalah, the word for this is chachma. Just like in every time we appreciate an idea, first we have what's called a flash. You know, you have a flash of inspiration, then you got to process it and develop it into a a multifaceted idea. That's called Chachma and Bina, the two stages of 
super-rational intellect and then rational intellect. So in this world, we can only appreciate things with our, with our brains in a bina level. In the next world, you get it the way it's rooted in Chochmah, the way it's, the way it's most pure, most unadulterated, most, in, most infinite. You get a window into a part of God that you would never be able to get in, uh, in this world. So that's, that's how the Olam Haba is framed in Jewish and Hasidic literature. What about this world, Olam Hazeh? Olam Hazeh, in Pirkei Avot, in Ethics of Our Fathers, it says, Ba'asara ma'amarot nivraha olam. The world was created with ten utterances. This world came into being through God's speech. You look in the first chapter of Genesis, of Bereshis, by Yomer Elohim, Hashem said that there'd be light, Hashem said that there'd be heaven, Hashem said this, Hashem said that. Everything was uttered into being. Now, God didn't, you know, take a microphone and give a speech, like I'm talking to you, and talk the world into existence. That's not what it means. What it means is that when we examine the properties of human speech, we can gain an insight into the way that Hashem relates to the creation of His world. So whenever we look at the qualities of physical speech, it's a reflection of how God manifested Himself in the creation of the world. So what do we know about speech? Many things. In the, even in the Tanya itself, the metaphor of speech for creation has come up multiple times. If you can remember that far back into chapter 21 of book one, this is like ages ago, middle of COVID still, uh, we talked about speech as a metaphor for like speech is separate from you. Thought takes place within you, speech leaves you. So in that way, Hashem is in some way divorced from the world. Then there was in book two, the metaphor of speech came up again with a bit of a different twist. And here, in book four, the speech comes up again. <coughs> and uh, the Altarab has a very interesting take that you don't find anywhere else in the Tanya. He says, speech is a reflection, or it's the culmination, let's call it, of what's going on inside you. The human psyche is much more than speech. In fact, Hasidus in some places makes the case a human being doesn't need speech if not for the fact that there were other human beings. If I didn't have to communicate, I wouldn't be lacking as a human. I'm a full person. But speech is the end. When I dream of something and I get excited about it and I develop a passion for it and I want to share, with, share it with you, that's where speech comes in handy. It's the very bottom of the ladder. That's the concept of speech. But there's also a physical process of speech. Just physically. Dr. Ebi really breaks it down. He says, you have air. Your lungs emit air. The air turns into sound. At the core of every word is a sound. The sounds turn into letters. Each letter has to be vowelized. In Hebrew, there are vowels on each letter, so uh, Aleph doesn't just get pronounced. It's a, it's a, it's a non-sound until you attach a vowel. You say, ah, a, e, e. So the letter is taken on a vowel. Then the vowels, in turn, take letters and make them into words, into sentences, into chapters, into thoughts, etc. So it's a very uh, detailed process. The air, sound, Letters, vowels, sentences. All of those together communicate your idea. So if I asked you, which 
part of speech carries the foremost importance? Is it the idea that I want to communicate, the content of my speech, or the process of the physical speech? Typically, the case would be made that it's the idea that's most important. I'm trying to give a class, so I know what I want to say, and the words are just the vehicle by which I communicate my idea, but the idea is where it's at. The Alter Rebbe says that if we make a little closer analysis, we can reveal that the opposite is true. Ever think about how your mouth uh, forms all different types of letters? The Torah references that there are five parts of the mouth that help with sound. And the lips, the teeth, the tongue, the palate, and the throat. Different letters come from different parts of the, bo- of, of the mouth, if you think about it. Aleph, a hay, chet, and an ayin, those come from the throat. Bez, vav, mem, pe, those are from the lips. Different parts of the mouth are used for different letters. But each part has multiple letters come out of it. So what, what, what motivates or what gets your mouth to move in the exact way to produce the exact letter that you want to give out? Yeah, I mean, how does it happen? Goes through, what no, how? Right? how? What, what, what is the process by which your soul, let's call it, that's the way he frames it in the Tanya, releases the different letters through the mouth? Breath. Yeah, it's, it's through breath. Mm-hmm. But, what, but, but what, what gets the breath to make a vav in this case, and a bays in this case, and a mem in that right. case, and a pay in that right. case? Right. It's the brain, right? right? But the question is, Is it a natural process? Is it an academic process? Is it a subconscious process? So the Alter Rebbe says, you, maybe you think it's natural. It's a natural process. He says, no, it's not natural. Your voice is natural. Every person is born with a certain type of voice that when you speak, this is the kind of voice that you have. The parts of your mouth don't naturally produce different letters. Your tongue doesn't automatically produce this kind of letter. Because if it did, it would only be able to produce one letter, not five. If it was natural to the individual parts of the mouth to produce certain letters, you would have to have 22 parts in your mouth, each one producing a different letter. The fact that certain parts are capable of producing multitude of letters proves that it's not something embedded in your nature. On the other hand, you cannot say either that it's an academic process. You cannot say that your mind actively focuses on producing each time you want to say a bet or a vav or a mem or a pay, each time you're, you're, you have to act, actively think about it. That's not what we observe. We observe that you just speak, words tumble out of your mouth as they go. In fact, if you have to focus on your words, if you have to be thinking about what you're saying, you're in one of three situations. Either you're a baby, babies are learning how to talk, so that for them it's an effort, or you're in you've had a physical uh, sickness, you've had a stroke. People that have a stroke, they have to learn to talk again. It's incredible effort to get words out. Or you're in trouble. Or you're married. Or you're married. (laughs) Yes. That's right. Because, you know, that's the only time we find ourselves thinking about which letters to say. Ever speak to a lawyer who goes in front of a jury? There's an incredible precision that has to go into it. 
or the police officer is knocking down your window and pulling you over to give you a ticket, you better think what you're going to say there. And, you're, and in your head, you can feel yourself coming up with the words. But typically, as a human being, you just talk. Letters come out of us. Nobody has to think, tell their tongue to say this letter, and then the teeth, that one, and then the throat, that one. Which tells us, uh, says the Alter Rebbe, that there's something much deeper going on when we talk. In Kabbalistic language, he calls it, there's 22 letters and 10 vowels seated in your soul. And they come out together with the ideas that you communicate. Or if I can say it in a more common language, more profound than what you're saying is that you're talking. The greatest miracle of speech is the capacity to form the words themselves. And it's specifically because of that that we take it for granted. It's the part that we don't think about that's the most incredible and the most profound. You know that story of the guy who uh, got an asthma attack. And he went to the doctor, but it was a very severe one. And they put him under treatment, and uh, very intensive treatment for a couple of weeks till they got him back regulating his breathing. And at the end, he came to the doctor. He was an older man in his 80s. And the doctor you know, draws up the bill, and he says, okay, this is going to cost you, you know, $12,800 for this treatment. And the old man broke down in front of the doctor. The doctor says, don't worry, you're probably old. You don't have that much money. We can work it out. Let's finance it, the planning. He says, no, you don't know why I'm crying. For 85 years, I breathed God's oxygen on the planet for free. Now, only now am I appreciating when you gave me a little treatment and you're costing me $12,000 for the machines to help me breathe. And for that amount of time that I was able to just breathe on my own, it makes me appreciate the magnitude of God's miracle. You know, our bodies are functioning on automatic. They're, they're doing things all the time and we don't give it any, any credit. It's only when there's issues, you know, when there's bumps in the road, that's when we realize, oh, now I chap. A lot of people figure that out when they're on the base ladders for carbon. That's right. No. That's right. I remember that in the beginning of the, of the pandemic. It was a big thing. Says the Alter Rebbe, when we speak, it's not so much that the lips want to move so the soul gets into making them move. It's the soul wants to speak so the lips accommodate it. And we don't realize how great, how great that is, but it is the greatest part of speech, not the idea, the capacity of speech. Just the, the phenomenon of being able to emit words from our subconscious. So is, what is he saying? Is he saying that we would think that speech is a product of thought, but you're saying that it's actually... Yes, that's exactly what he says, actually. He says, the says, that's why babies can't speak even though they understand everything. Babies have the capacity to understand, but not to speak. I don't know how they explain it scientifically. He doesn't say what age. He says Tinok. I'm sure there's a scientific reason for that as well, why it develops later. But Kabbalistically, it's because, like Philip just said, speech is not a product of intellect. It's a product of something higher and deeper than it. And Alter Rebbe says, every thinker, kol maskil, can appreciate this. That speech is rooted in a subconscious essential force that totally transcends the capacity of reason. 
And the ideas, the ideas are just a mechanism. You, you, you can't speak unless you're communicating an idea. Granted, you have to have something to say. But when you say it, appreciate that what's happening is there's a revelation that's happening simultaneously of your most uh, deep-seated faculties. Yeah. In sort of secular psychology and anthropology, they say that the distinction between man and animals is the concept of language. Uh-huh. That language gives rise to consciousness. Without, without the vehicle of language, there's no ability to express the distinction between ourselves and the animal kingdom. That's right. I, I can prove it. By the way, I mean... happened to most people here. When you try to explain to somebody an idea that you have, why are you talking you start seeing angles you never saw before when you yes. Has it ever happened to you? Like, like you're like all of a sudden in, in the actual flow with act on the fly. It's a fascinating idea. All the time, right? Yeah, even as I'm talking now, new things are coming to me. Yeah, and it's 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 not in the Tanya. There's a there's a mimer from the fifth Chabad Rebbe, incredible mimer. In, uh, he delivered it on Rosh Hashanah, where he talks about this exact concept that speech brings forth novelty, which is a proof that it's rooted deeper in the soul. That's why we're not present when we're speaking with people, because it's too much stuff coming. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah but you were saying that if you don't have people around you, you have no need for speech, but you still do, because if any idea comes to you, oh. if you don't, if you don't say, say it, it that's a very good point. You're, you reminded me that the, the Magid, the Alter Rebbe's teacher, he had a thing that when he got a new thought of Hasidus, he would just say it, even if nobody was around. Well, that's why, Rabbi, when we pray, we, we still read it. We say it. We, we, and we say it. We, we, it. we verbalize it. Right. Oftentimes, you have it doesn't to. matter if you're alone or not. Exactly. Exactly. Someone's always listening. Someone's always listening. Well, that's another thing. But yeah, and also the, the, the I read there's a um, at the very end of this letter, letter number five, there's like just two lines where the Alter Rebbe references the idea of talking to yourself versus talking to others. He says it's reserved for the for the intellectuals, and the Rebbe said that the Alter Rebbe didn't want to get into it because it's very deep. But there is a concept of talking to yourself, where just the talking produces an energy, but. We're talking about regular speech just to others. Even there, the speech is rooted in something much, much deeper. So the Alter Rebbe says, how do we apply this to our world? We say, Hashem created the world with speech. What are we saying? What we're saying is not so much to focus on the details of what Hashem created. Look at this vast universe. You know, typically you talk about people, when, when they want to marvel at Hashem's world, they marvel at, at the sophistication of the design. There's so much. Look at the details. So incredible, so intelligent. And that's all true. All that beauty is true. But when we say that Hashem created the world with speech, what we're really saying is that the divine investment into the fabric of our universe carries the same depth as your speech carries from your soul. Just like your speech carries the deepest parts of your soul, so too when God spoke the world into existence, just the phenomenon of the speaking, just the words, just the capacity to speak and not the detail, is itself where the greatest part of God can be accessed. So if I can summarize what we said until now, we have the next world and we have this world. Both of them are a product of the same thing. Both of them are a product of transcendental godliness. 
the intellectual experience of the next world is governed by super-rationality. The speech experience of the creation of this world is also rooted in something incredibly deep. The deepest part, the etzem, God's essence. But fascinatingly, Al-Terebbe says, the Talmud has a puzzling line where it quotes the verse, Ki b'ka Hashem tzur olamim. We say it every day in Uvalet Zion, after Shemon Esri, in Davening. Ki b'ka Hashem tzur olamim. Which means that Hashem created the world b'ka, yud hey, with the letters yud and hey. The Talmud says all of creation comes down to two letters. B'yud nivra olam haba, b'hey nivra olam hazeh. The next world was created with a yud, and this world was created with a hey. What does that mean? So, olam haba with a yud makes perfect sense. Kabbalistically, a yud is like a point. A point means that which is beyond reason. You know, the, even a physical point, when you put a pen on a paper, that's not really a point. It already has dimension. True points only exist in theory. When you can visualize the concept of a point without any dimension. So the yud is the quintessential point of godliness, the essence of godliness that governs everything. So when you say that the yud is the core of olam haba, that makes sense, because all of the experience that we have in the future world comes down to the quintessential point of God. But this world should also be attributed to yud. At the end of the day, the speech that brought this world into existence is rooted in God's deepest essence. So it should also be the, the same yud that created the next world should have created this world. Instead, we put the focus on the hey. Hey, when you think about it, the sound ha, is the core of all sound. All speech begins with air, which is that's the sound of air. So when the Talmud wants to put the focus on what is at the core of this world, it doesn't say yud, it says hey, focusing on the external, physical part of the speech versus the spiritual, sublime part of the speech. Why is that? Says the Alter Rebbe, that's because we can't appreciate the infinity that's present in this world. It's true that when God spoke the world into existence, at the core of it lies that level of, you know, totally beyondness. But to the observer, right, we're, we're, we're living the result of God's creation. Believe you me, we don't see God's light. We see darkness, if anything. We see concealment. We see we see complete blockage of, of godliness. So, therefore, when the Talmud is talking to us and says, yes, Hashem brought the world to, to creation through speech, for you, living beings, it's the external part of the speech. But know, be aware, that there is a deeper part of the speech. There's considerable discussion in the letter. We're not going to get into it, but it's a Kabbalistic thing of, about the hay, the hay itself, God's name, the Tetragrammaton, for, has two hays. You know, the first hay, the second hay, which hay are we talking about? All leading to the same concept, that in the end, it's rooted in much higher things. But we, we experience the tail end of it. Hay is for hidden. Hay is for hidden. <laughs> okay. Sure. Hay is for hidden. I like that. Wasn't the hay, didn't you once talk about how the, it comes down and the hay like spreads it into... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hay has, has a, yeah, it has a, it has a line this way and a line that way. Yeah, he even mentions it in the letter. He references it, that uh, it's the concept of a point, that yud, the point, getting, getting formed.
it, it has a little stretch this way and that way. But one more point before we get to the, to the punchline. One more point. The Talmud says that this world was created with a hay. Now this world, like I said, doesn't mean just this physical planet. It means the universe in its current version. Everything about it, including the spiritual cosmos, all goes into the category of olam hazet. This world means the entire chain reaction that brought this world into existence. The worlds of Atsilut, Bri'ah, Yitzira, all the complicated, sophisticated spiritual realms were also all created with God's speech. So why do we pick on this world? This world with the hay. All the worlds were created with God's speech. Oh, Philip knows Kabbalah too much. Yeah. But that, 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 that is the core of the answer. The core of the answer is that, yes, it's true. Every world was created with speech. But every world also has godly sophistication in it. The question is what comes first. When you go to the higher realms, the spiritual worlds, first, the first reality which is apparent is the beauty, the expression of godliness, the light, what we call in Kabbalah, the or. So, Inasmuch as it was brought into creation by speech, it doesn't continue to maintain the speech as its identity. Its identity becomes that which is beyond the speech. This world was brought into, the, brought into being by speech, and that's how it kept its identity. We are, like you said, Malchus, the lowest level where it all culminates. We only get the external version, the cut, you know, the final cut. Of everything. We don't get to see all the detail and all the all the stuff all the matter that went into um, making it. The pre-tsimtsum? Even, even the post-tsimtsum. The post-tsimtsum is incredibly rich. It's incredibly rich. Incredibly godly. But here we get nothing. A total block. It's like a wall goes up. And that's all that we get. Yes. Well, that's the that's the ultimate. Everybody hopes for that. We hope that we can remove the curtain. And when Mashiach comes, that's what it is. We we take away the curtain. But now that's not what we have. So, bottom line, what are we left with? This world really has the driving force is God's essence. But the perceived reality is a reality of speech. A reality of God being hidden. Now what do we know about speech? Another quality of speech. Speech, and you mentioned the word before, takes tzimtzum. It's a word that's come up for us in the Tanya a couple of times. Tzimtzum means reduction or contraction or compression. You ever... uh, we talk about speech coming from the heart. Speech is an expression of emotion. If you're too passionate, you can't speak. If you're hyperventilating, you lose the capacity to talk. If you're too emotional, it's got to be in moderation. Emotion can guide your speech, but it has to be a limited level of emotion. 
That's an example. It's not in the Tanya, but there's an example from this, this letter out there that talks about teaching. You have a teacher and a student. The premise is that the teacher knows more than the student. And not just in quantity, but also in quality. The person typically giving over the idea comprehends the whole topic on a different level. And so when you want to communicate an idea, what you really have to do is find the words to contain it. And the, yet, and the more you want to contain it, the more effort you have to put into it. I, I, there's a saying that's attributed to somebody, Churchill or Woodrow Wilson, one of the two, they said, if you, if you ask me to say a speech for five minutes, I need two weeks to prepare. If you want me to talk all day, I'm ready now. <laughs> right? Because when, you when your speech is unlimited, okay, just talk, you garble, and do what I say, whatever you want. When you want it to be focused with a benefit, with a takeaway, you've got to put in the hours of preparation. So speech requires an incredible amount of tzimtzum. On the macro, for God to speak the world into existence is an incredible tzimtzum for him. It's so beyond him, it's so beneath him. It's so not his essence, you would think. God really, really measures the energy that he puts into the world. So, what's keeping him motivated? To keep on talking the world into existence. It says in Kabbalah that the first time round, when Hashem created the world, it was because Ki chesed hu. God desired kindness. God wanted to be generous and create a world. Or did he want chesed to be done? Oh, but then, but then, Hashem said, you're going to have to inspire my continued speech. I did it out of my kindness, but now you need to arouse my perpetual kindness by doing kindness. Specifically by doing tzedakah. And this is where tzedakah comes in. You know, Torah, Torah it says, studying Torah and Kabbalah, it says that the whole world stands on Torah. By those that are toiling in Torah, that's what's keeping the world alive. Every day in davening, we say that the, 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 the Talmidei Chachamim, those that are, are studious, are called the builders of the world. They keep the world going. But, the Alter Rebbe says, because Torah is an intellectual study, it's, 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 um, it can be very, very pleasurable and stimulating. So, ultimately, it really only feeds the higher realms. Those realms where what's prevalent is God's beauty and the sophistication. But for this physical world to keep existing, for God to keep talking this reality into existence, it takes practical kindness, practical chesed. That's why the Talmud says, anybody that tells you I only have Torah in my life, know that he doesn't even have the Torah. You must have Torah accompanied with tzedakah, acts of kindness. On Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, the day that morning of the temple's destruction, is a haftorah, a special haftorah. At the very end, it says, let the wise man not be prideful with his wisdom. Let the intellectual man not be prideful with his intellect. Instead, you should be, take pride in knowing that God is a God who does kindness. And the Altar sees in that verse a parallel to what we're saying. If it's just wisdom that you're proud of, if that's all you have access to, you have no reason to be proud. 
wisdom without providing actual kindness is a wisdom that has no life. It has to manifest in chesed. It has to manifest in tzedakah. Tzedakah is what brings godliness down here. That's why the Arizal writes that there are two types of souls among the Jewish people who collaboratively bring God's mission to fruition. There are those souls that are occupied in Torah, those souls that are occupied in mitzvot and tzedakah. Both of them do both. It's obvious. The Torah guys also do tzedakah. Tzedakah guys also do Torah. But because the Torah guys are occupied with Torah, even their tzedakah is a spiritual tzedakah. They'll teach people. They'll volunteer their time in those ways. But the tzedakah people, the guys who are on the ground, giving the financials, that is the, is the highest level of tzedakah. And that could be even greater than Torah because it carries godliness down into this physical world. That's why even the word tzedakah in the verse is called ma'aseh. It's called a deed because it brings God down to the world of action. It crosses all those boundaries. It keeps Hashem talking. And this, the Alter Rebbe says, is alluded to in a Zohar. That's the closing part of the letter. The Zohar says that um, it comments on a verse. The verse says, Vayas David Shem. David, King David made a name. So literally it means he made a name for himself or he made a name for the Jewish people. But the Zohar says it means he made, he formed the name of God. David, and how did he form the name of God? Through giving tzedakah. Next verse says he gave tzedakah. He did righteousness, charity. Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, cried. The Zohar says he cried and he said, who merits to form the name of God, to make the name of God? He who gives tzedakah every day. You give tzedakah every day, you make the name of God. What does that mean you make the name of God? God exists without you. You make the name of God means you bring it to its most wholesome state. God wants to be carried down to this physical world. Without that, he isn't made. He isn't formed to perfection. You give tzedakah. You are making that formation. You're bringing godliness to this world. One of my tiny teachers told me, Abdurba doesn't say, but why did, why did Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai cry when he said that? Why did he cry? He could have just said, you make the name of God, you give tzedakah. Because Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai was Mr. Torah par excellence. The Talmud says he studied Torah all day. He didn't even have to pray because he studied all day. And even Rabbi Shimon cried when he realized that there's something more powerful than his Torah. All of his Torah study combined couldn't equal to the power of another person giving tzedakah, practically giving the money, giving the donation, putting someone else on his feet. That's what brought God to the lowest realm. And that is what keeps Hashem talking. That's what keeps the perpetual state of this world's existence. And I think it's incredibly divine providence that today is the third of Shabbat. Third of Shabbat in 1992. The Rebbe delivered one of his last talks. And the Rebbe said, it says in this week's Parsha, that Moshe Rabbeinu came to God and he said, how can I talk to Pharaoh? I'm, I'm, I've got a heavy tongue and a heavy mouth. I stutter. I can't talk. And Moshe said, Hashem said, Aaron will be your mouthpiece. Aaron will be your talker. You just deliver what you can and Aaron will develop it for you. And the Rebbe said, in every generation there's a Moses. Every generation has a tzaddik who's Moshe Rabbeinu. He said, in our generation it was my father-in-law, the Friedrich Rebbe. And the Friedrich Rebbe had a stroke five years before he passed away. 
and he was no longer able to speak. And the doctor asked him, the Rebbe is recounting the story. The doctor asked him, how could it be that a man whose whole power, whose whole influence is in his mouth, loses, by God's providence, the ability to speak? If Hashem governs the world, and you, the Rebbe, are doing such great work with your mouth, how could Hashem take away your capability of speaking? And the Rebbe said, we don't know the answer. But the message from the Parsha is, just like the original Moshe had Aaron, who was a mouthpiece, so to the Rebbe, has Hasidim, his followers, who must be his mouthpiece. He did whatever speaking he needed to do. Now, it's our job to, to carry that message forward and be that, be that, keep the Rebbe talking. And it was incredibly divine providence because just a month later, the Rebbe himself had a stroke. In 1992, just, and people connected the import of the message mm-hmm. to say that the Rebbe was saying, my time of influencing through my mouth is coming to a close by divine providence and now it's on you each of you who are influenced by my teachings, everybody who comes into contact with the Rebbe's ideas needs to become the mouthpiece and carry that forward. We all need to be a mini Rebbe. We all need to be a mini leader. Barry always talks about this. You got to talk. You got to talk. You got to educate. If we have the power to keep talking, we got to keep it going. And we also have to keep Hashem talking by constantly giving tzedakah. Right. Bye. 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 Bye.